John chapter 9. We're going to start off in verses 1, and we're going to read through 7, and then we're going to be jumping um, all around throughout this passage. Starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work with the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Dear Heavenly Father, God, uh, just thank you so much for bringing us here today. We ask that you would would do something awesome in our hearts. God, show us a little bit more of who Jesus is. Um, you're, You're the God who opens people's eyes so that we can see you for who you are. You do that today in our passage and in this blind beggar. And we want you to do it in our hearts. God, we want to know the God of the Bible. We want to know the person of Jesus. So please be so kind, God, as to do the same thing in our hearts and just equip us to see you for who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. So our our passage opens up with Jesus walking out of the temple and he notices the blind man. All right. So he kind of directs his attention. He notices the blind man and his disciples notice him notice the blind man. So they see that, that Jesus stops and he's looking at this guy. And the disciples ask a really interesting and almost insensitive question about the man's life. They, they look at him, they see him sitting there, and um, he's a well-known guy. The, the, the disciples obviously know who he, who he is and that he's been uh, blind his whole life. So they ask Jesus, why is this man blind? And, and they really, they ask it in such a way that assumes it's because of either his parents' sin or his sin, okay? So they're asking, what is the cause of this man's suffering? What is the cause of this man's blindness? That's a question we ask a lot. Like, why, why do we go through suffering? Why do we go through hard things? So that's what they're asking Jesus. And um, of course, Jesus being the, the creator of all things, God wrapped in flesh, he knows this guy, right? Like he intimately knows him. He knows um, the reason he's born blind. He knows how old he is. He knows how many hairs are on his head. He knows every aspect of this guy's life. And he could just answer the question really quick, right? He could just say, well, it's because of this reason or this reason. Um, but, But Jesus doesn't do that. He actually uses this to teach his disciples and us an awesome truth. Some truths about suffering and some truths about the glory of God. So that that's what we're gonna look at today. So they're asking a question about, the cause of this man's sin. Now, before we look at how Jesus answers this, um, I, I want us just to, to think through the disciples' thinking process because they, they've got good reason for, for thinking the way they do. Um, number one, we, we do know, and, and we all acknowledge as Christians, that sin is the cause of every bit of suffering in our world, right? So uh, all, all of our suffering, all of the pain, all the agony, every, every terrible and bad thing that happens in this world is because of sin, okay? So, so the Bible calls that original sin. And these are just the, the normal causes of sin. Um, we have car wrecks, okay? People get cancer, people die, people get sick. Bad things happen because we live in a world of sin. And a lot of times these aren't for any particular rhyme or reason. They just happen because our world is broken. And the second thing that we also know to be true is there are certain instances 
where, where people's personal sin brings about a personal suffering in their own life, okay? So we see this all the time in scriptures. You have uh, Samson, man, he, he's, a, he's a crazy character and, and he, he, he is always getting himself into all sorts of terrible situations and suffering because of his sin. Even in the last of his life, we see that his eyes get ripped out and it, then even his death is, is, um, is caused by his sin. And we have the, the, the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida earlier in the book of John. Jesus heals his lameness, but then he says to him right after, he comes and finds him and he says, stop sinning or else something worse will happen to you. So we do know that there are occasions where, where people's sin brings about suffering, okay? And, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys that. You can look back into your own life and see it, right? I, I can, I've been married for two years. I can look back into my marriage and I can see suffering that I have brought, pain that I have brought by my sin, okay? So we, we know that there are those two types of sins, sins that, that are general, okay? Sins that, that we, we're all gonna suffer just because we live in a broken world, but also there are sins that, that are the cause um, of our, our suffering that is the cause of our personal sin. And that's what the disciples are assuming in this passage. They, they asked Jesus, who's the one who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Okay, so that's the question they're asking. And Jesus gives them a different answer than they're expecting. So when Jesus answers their question, he doesn't give them the cause of the blind man's sin. So he doesn't tell them, what, what's the reason or why? He tells them the purpose for this blind man's sin. So there, there's, there's a reason that he was born blind and God's going to do something out of it. So look at verse three. And verse three is, is really, if verse three isn't there, we have, we have none of the rest of the passage. Jesus tells us a lot in verse three. So we're gonna spend quite a bit of time there. In verse three, Jesus answered them. It was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is answering his disciples. He's telling them, okay, you guys are, you're focused on the cause and, and that's what we all do. Like, why is this happening, God? What did I do? Did, do you guys ever feel like when, when the whole world starts to fall apart that you've made God mad or you've done something wrong? I've felt like that. It's like, man, I can't find joy. Man, what's, what's wrong? Something, something's broken in me. God, what did I do? Why have I made you mad? Okay, so that, that's what the disciples are assuming. And when we look into this passage, Jesus isn't looking back at the cause of the man's sin. He says, there's something way more important. And that's what's going to happen. So Jesus, he looks forward and he says, the big thing that we need to focus on is what's gonna come about because of this man's suffering and what's going to happen because of his blindness. So what I wanna do is, is I wanna look at three things in this verse, just in verse three, that God teaches us about suffering, all right? We, we live in a broken world of suffering. It's, it's all around. I, I don't even know what you guys are going through, but I'm sure in this room, there's terrible suffering going on in your lives. And here are three things that Jesus tells us about suffering. Keep in mind that the blind man hears these three things when Jesus, when Jesus says these. So number one, we see that Jesus says, don't be so quick to play the role of judge. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So Jesus is saying, don't be so quick to assume that when people are suffering, 
that it's because of their own personal sin. Don't, don't, don't arrange or set ourselves in the place of judge where, where we look into other people's lives and we see their suffering and we say, man, they must have done something really bad or they must have made God really angry. We shouldn't do that, okay? That is not helpful at all in the Christian life, okay? What, what we should do as brothers and sisters in Christ is we should come alongside of them. We should comfort them. We should pray with them. We should even mourn with them or suffer alongside them, Okay? But, but it's a really dangerous thing to, to be making assumptions about suffering in people's life because most of the time we get it wrong. So Jesus warns them about that, first of all. Um, second in this verse, he says, but it, but, it, but it is brought about that the works of God might be displayed in him. So God teaches us two things in the second half of this verse. And, and the first one's kind of a tough thing. God is saying that, or Jesus is saying that God allows suffering because he's going to do something through it. So I know this is a, a hard one for some of us. Some of us can't, can't imagine or, or get our minds around a God who would allow suffering in his people's lives or, or, even, or even put suffering in his people's lives to accomplish a certain thing. Like when we hear that, we're like, I don't, I don't know about that. It, we, we think it sound, makes God sound mean, like he's trying to hurt us or put us through something. So I, I listed three things in scripture and three areas where we see God do this, where we see him either cause or allow suffering in a believer's life so he can do something through it, okay? So the, the first way that we see this is God uses, his, uh, uses suffering to correct us. Hebrews 12, verses five through seven say this, "'My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, "'nor be weary when reproved by him. "'For the Lord disciplines the one he loves "'and chastises every son whom he receives.'" It is, it is for discipline that you, have, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So every, every good parent understands this kind of correcting discipline, right? So when, you're, when your kids' lives are going towards something sinful and dangerous, when, the, when they're veering off the path and, and they're going to something that's gonna hurt them, it is good and right for a parent to inflict suffering, Right? We, we do this out of love. We, we even, my dad would do this. He'd bend me over my knee. I'm doing this because I love you, okay? At the time, we're like, what are you talking about? This is going to hurt. This is going to be painful. But he's trying to teach me a lesson. When you do this thing, it brings pain in your life. And so that, that's one way that God uses suffering. When, when, we, when we step off towards things that, that are dangerous and bad for us, he inflicts suffering out of love to, to, to protect us, to show us when you do this thing, it's going to bring pain and suffering in your life. We see this uh, with King David, don't we? And when, when, when he sins with Bathsheba in a big way, his whole kingdom, God tells him, because you did this, your whole kingdom is gonna get ripped apart, divided, and Dave, David loses three sons out of the deal. So we, we see that, that God does use suffering or, or even allow it sometimes in order to correct us. Another thing that he do, does is he, uh, he uses it to, to shape us. So James 1, verses 2 and 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So um, as Christians, we, we also need to remember that God's doing something in us through our suffering. Okay, he's, he's shaping us, he's molding us, he's making us into the image of Christ. Whether you've been a Christian for, for 40 years or 40 minutes, 
okay, you're not where you need to be yet, right? We, we've still got sins and we've got attitudes and we've got deep problems inside of us that God is trying to work out of us, okay? And, and, and let's just all be honest. How much of us grow through the easy, relaxed times of life? I mean, like when everything's going good and you got money in the bank and there's no stress, like how many of you like go through real spiritual growth in those times? We don't. We don't, like the biggest moments of growing in my life have been through terrible heartache and pain. They really have been. When, when I see God the most clearly, when, he is, when he's at work in my life is through the terrible things. And so God uses suffering to, to change and shape us and make us more like Jesus. And lastly, the reason given in our story, um, he, he uses our suffering for his own glory. And, and should we really find it strange that, that God uses our lives, our being, our, our suffering, or even this man's blindness for his glory? Um, we were talking about in Team Kids this week what we were created to do. We were doing the creation story, the creation of man. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So it, it's not strange or weird if God even wants to use the, the painful things or the hard things for his glory. That, that's his creation's intent. That's what we were made for. And all of this is not said to make little of our suffering. I, I, don't, want, I don't want you guys to, to hear me say that. Suffering is real, it's painful, and I don't even have any idea what all is going on in your lives. But it's not said to make uh, little of your suffering. It's said to make much of God's glory. It's saying that God's glory is a bigger deal here than your suffering. And so I, I know this might be a struggle. I, and like I said, I've been, I've been looking at this passage for six months. So what, what's helped me the most with this is, is knowing these two things. So suffering for God's glory makes a lot more sense if, number one, God is your greatest treasure. So if, if you value God much more than your health, much more than your wealth and your prosperity and how things are going in your life, then this makes sense. If, if his glory is a big deal to you, then you're okay with him using you even in hard times to make much of himself. And number two, and this is really helpful, you have to have an eternal perspective. So some, some of the pain and suffering that people endure over the course of a life is massive and horrible and terrible. And I'm not saying it's not, but in the scope of eternity, all of it seems as light momentary affliction to what God's doing. That's what, that's what Paul says. So, so far, Jesus said two things about suffering. Number one, don't be so quick to play the role of judge. Number two, God allows suffering because he's doing something through it. And this one kind of follows from point two. Number three, our suffering is not meaningless. What an encouragement that is. Like the painful things that we go through, they're, they're not meaningless. They're not useless. God is working them together for our good and his glory. He's doing something through the hard things in our life. That's, what's, that's what the scripture says. So I want to look at a few stories real quick, just out of scripture, that, that show this to be true. Um, number one's the story of Joseph. So in the story of Joseph, we find a guy who's, who's really a good reflection of Christ. He's a, a Christ-like character. Throughout the whole life of Joseph, we don't see any kind of major mess-ups or failures. All right, so he's a, he's a Christ-like character, but he has tons of terrible things happen to him. Okay, he's hated by his brothers. They even plot and plan to murder him. Okay, when he, when he comes out away from his father, they beat the tar out of the guy. 
all right? They throw him in a, a ditch to leave him for dead, but then they see some slave traders coming by and they're like, hey, why not just make some money off the guy? So they sell him into slavery, okay? When, when he's in slavery in Egypt, he gets falsely accused, okay? He's got this, this terrible life. He spends a lot of his time there in jail. So this is a guy who goes through a lot of suffering, and at the end of his life, um, God does raise him up to a position and allow him to see what that suffering was for. And look what he says in Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20. And this is when he's talking to his brothers. They're asking for forgiveness. And Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? So he said, man, I'm, I'm not the, man, I trust God. He's the one who orchestrates. He's the one who sets things up. Joseph knew that God called all the shots. And then the rest of the verse. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Okay, so even before his brothers had a plan to, you know, to, to wreck his life, to kill their brother, God had a plan to work it together for, for the good of his people and for his own glory. Um, in the story of Samson, we talked about this a while ago. So, so Samson's this guy who constantly is getting himself into all sorts of trouble because of his pride and his sin. And at the end of his life, even though he's, he's blind and he's lost all of his strength, God again uses him for his glory when, when he knocks down the pillars of the, the temple that they're in and he kills 3,000 or more of the enemies there. So even, even though Samson's sin is self-inflicted, even though he's brought it on himself, God still uses it for his own glory and good. So that, that's kind of the, the introduction to this passage. And there's literally thousands of examples we could use. You could almost flip through scripture and put your finger down and land on a story where God works suffering together for his people's good. You really could. So you've got, you've got David, you've got Noah, Moses, you've got Isaac, you've got Abraham, okay? Uh, Jesus himself, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant who's despised and rejected by the world, you, all of these people suffer terrible things that God works together for, for their good and his glory. It's all throughout scripture. So that, like I said, that's the introduction to our passage. But here is where we're gonna get to, uh, to our story today. The, the place where God does use this man's blindness and his suffering for his glory. So let's look at verses four through seven. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming where no one can work. So Jesus is letting his disciples know, hey, I'm not gonna be here forever. You know, he's just a few weeks away from the cross. It's coming up quickly and he's saying, I'm, I'm not always gonna be here. So let, let's do things for the kingdom right now. But as long as I am in the world, but while I am here, um, I intend to be a light to this dark world. Now, now we need to remember that when he's saying these things, he's talking to his disciples, but the blind man who's suffering is within earshot. Okay, we have to remember that he's hearing these words that Jesus says. Because just in a second, Jesus says to him, I am the light of the world. Okay, so I imagine to a man who was born into a world of utter darkness, who, who has never seen, who has lived his, wor- his life as a beggar, shut off from everything, I, I think that that probably grips him in a huge way when he hears those words from Jesus. I am the light of the world. I bet that's exciting to him. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with his saliva and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, now this is just a really weird thing that Jesus does and I don't know why. I wish I could tell you. Um, I was talking with some guys the other day. There's a passage in Mark 
where uh, there, there's a guy who's deaf and Jesus sticks his fingers into the guy's ears and then pulls him out and then he touches his tongue and then the guy's healed. It's just weird, but God can do it however he wants. He, he can heal people however he wants. Um, I think the reason he does that is because th- this man, um, he can't see Jesus. So Jesus is being intimate with him. And he's, he's, he's being close and personal and he's, he's touching the guy. So he's, he's kind of engaging him where, where he can in his ears and, and in his touch, where he can feel him and hear him. So that's why I think he's doing it. Um, but this is the, the part of the passage where Jesus does two miraculous things for this man. Number one, uh, the creator of the universe, he, he heals a man's broken eyes. He sweeps away his whole life of blindness. That's the first miracle. The second thing is he, he miraculous, miraculously begins to take away years of misery and suffering and make them worthwhile. So he, he makes all this guy's pain and suffering and all the hardships not wasted in his life. Now let's look at verses eight through nine. So this is where we see the purpose begin to be fulfilled. That is that, that people start to take notice of the great work that's done in this man's life. Verses eight and nine. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? They're kind of confused. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it's someone who looks like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So apparently this guy is well known around town because he's kind of got his beggar post and he stays there all the time and, and the disciples know who he is and, and everybody around town knows who he is. Even the Pharisees know who he is in a little bit. So he's really well known around town and um, nobody knows him by his name. Everybody just calls him the blind beggar. That's what he's called throughout the, the whole story. So it kind of makes me think of, um, you know how in every town we just have those strange people that everybody knows who they are, but nobody really knows them? You know, I won't use any from Woodward because that'd be mean. But you know, like, so like the crazy cat lady or the, the town drunk. So everybody kind of knows their story and knows things about them, but nobody really knows them. Like, would we not talk and, and be like amazed and surprised if something happened in the crazy cat lady's life? Like if she got rid of all her cats and, you know, she cleaned her house up and she married an oil-filled tycoon. Like, will we not take notice of that and be like, okay, we need to ask some questions. Something crazy happened here. Or like if the, the town drunk, he gets a, you know, he sobers up and gets a degree in aerospace engineering and gets a job for NASA. Like that would be confusing, right? And we just, we'd want to know more information. We'd start asking questions and wanting to figure things out. That's what's happening here, Okay. This lame beggar who's sat there for years and years and, and people have talked about and they know who he is and, and they've probably speculated like the disciples did, but I wonder why he's like the way he is. They just heard that his whole world changed. They see it. He's, he's running around. He can see, he's jumping, he's excited because something took place in his life and they all want to know why. So, so they start asking questions. Like, what happened to you? Why are you the way that you are? Um, one thing that we need to take from this is when, when God's done something awesome in our life, it should be noticeable by others, okay? People in our neighborhood should notice when God does something big in us. There should be a change and they should ask us questions. Like, hey, you used to be a jerk and now you're nice. What happened? And then we should use those opportunities to brag on Jesus, right? And that's what the man does. I love what he says. He says, um, right here, it says, what, what happened to you? How were your eyes open? That's in verse 10. He answered them, the man called Jesus. That's the way we should start out our testimonies, right? Daniel, what happened to you? Man, you were this kind of guy and now you're this kind of guy. The man named Jesus. 
Then continue with my testimony. Tell him what God's done in my life. That's what this man does. He gives credit where credit is due and he brags on Jesus. He tells him who's the one who's the cause of the miracle. So the people can't believe what they've seen. This man just told them that Jesus does it. They're confused and, and they, they want to take him to, to the religious leaders. Right? Maybe they can explain and, and ha- help make sense of this crazy thing that happened. So they, they take him to the religious leaders. And now before we look at what happens with the Pharisees, there's some things we need to know. Because Jesus and the Pharisees are fighting all throughout the first eight chapters of John. Okay, there's more in the first eight chapters of John where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees than there is where he's talking to the disciples or other people. There's that much conflict. And, and it's weird because when you go back, I was reading through it this week, Jesus like seeks out this conflict. Like he's, he's always after the Pharisees. He's always engaging with them. He, he always heals on the Sabbath instead of Monday. Like he could have waited a day but he does it on purpose on Sabbath to get under the Pharisee's skin to mess with them. And, and it's, it's really out of love. We'll see that here in a little bit. So there, there's all this conflict and the Pharisees, they already know who Jesus is and they already kind of have their mind up about who he is. Listen how they respond to um, the words of the blind man in his testimony. Um, in verse 16, they say that Jesus can't be God because he doesn't, or or sorry, Jesus can't be a godly man because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. In verses 18 through 19, they deny that he even did a miracle. They say, okay, this is too crazy. Maybe he just didn't do anything and this guy's making the whole thing up. But then the parents come in and and show that this really was their son who has been born blind. And then verse 22, they had already agreed that anyone who called Jesus the Christ couldn't be in their synagogue. Like they already have their mind made up about who Jesus is. And then in verse 25, they say that Jesus is a sinful man. So they, they seem to already have their mind made up. And um, a lot happens in verses 13 through 25, but, but we're gonna go ahead and skip down to verse 26 and look at their final discussion um, with, with the blind man. So starting in verse 26. If I can find it. All right. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That really makes him mad. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered them, Why is this amazing thing to you that you do not know where he comes from? He opened my eyes. And then right here, the blind beggar starts to to give the Pharisees and the religious leaders a theological lesson. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were from God, he could do nothing. So what the blind man does is he's already told this testimony four times at the point in this passage, and, and they keep asking about it. So he just lays it out right in front of me. He says, here are the facts that you have to deal with. All right, I've been blind my whole life and a man named Jesus changed me. I know this. He lays it out there right in front. We have never heard of anything like this ever happening in all of history. There's no records of it. Lays it out in front of him. And so he's putting these pieces together so that the, the Pharisees have to deal with the truth and have to deal with Jesus. And look how they respond to him in verse 34. 
This shows their heart. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And then they cast him out. So I want, I want you to notice something here. They, they make the same assumption that the disciples do in the beginning of the passage. They, they assume that, that what's the brokenness and the suffering of this man's life is based upon his relationship with God and that God's punishing him. They, that's what they say to him. You were born in utter sin. You're the blind beggar. That's what they're saying. You're, you're, man, you're lowly. You don't know anything and you're trying to teach us. But, but I think the really dangerous thing here is they also make the opposite assumption. You're trying to teach us? We're the religious Pharisees. We're the ones who God has blessed. We're the ones who have a high position. We have knowledge. God, man, God has revealed things to us, right? They're making that opposite assumption and, and kind of have this health, wealth, and prosperity attitude. And they're saying, because of your position and your pain, God is not okay with you. But because of our position and that life is easy for us, he is pleased with us. That is a dangerous assumption to make. Please don't make that assumption. Don't make the assumption that if your life is hard and you're going through something rough right now, that God is opposed to you because that is not true. And don't make the assumption that if everything is easy and relaxed, that God's just so happy with you and that you're his favorite person, that he's just pouring down blessings on you. Don't make that assumption. That is equally dangerous to make. And God's gonna deal with this type of heart that they have here in a little bit. You were born in utter sin and would you teach us? So Jesus is gonna respond to that. But first, let's look at the blind man. So he just got kicked out of the temple. Um, I used to feel really bad for the guy. I was like, man, it's like, he's never been welcomed in the temple his whole life. He's been unclean. He's an outcast. He's blind. He's a beggar. He's not allowed. His first day in, he gets in a fight with the people in charge and they kick him out. I was like, I felt bad with him. But then I, I realized like, he's not upset. Like his day is not ruined. He, like at the beginning of the day, he was a blind beggar. Now he can see. Like he could care less, right? It's gonna take a lot more than some jerks kicking him out of a temple to ruin his day. And as a matter of fact, it's about to get a whole lot better because the best thing ever is about to happen to him. So in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, so notice that, that Jesus goes after this guy and we see this a lot in Jesus' miracles. He'll heal someone at one point, And then that same day, he tracks them down. Okay, now he does this for a reason. Jesus is not only interested in, in blessing us or like right now and giving us a little bit of comfort, a little bit of joy. He's not only interested in helping this guy out for a little while. Like, I, I wanna give you sight for the rest of your life. He wants to do something much greater. He wants to bless this guy for the rest of his eternity. He wants to do something amazing in him. He wants to to get a hold of him and do a bigger miracle. And that's what he's about to do. In verse 35, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He wants to, he just wants to know who he is. And Jesus says to him, you have seen him with the very eyes that Jesus had given him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So man, Here's where Jesus does the bigger miracle, right? Here's where Jesus does the better thing. Here's the part where we should get excited in the passage. Jesus visits the man the first time and it's just a sneak preview of the real miracle. It's just a shadow of what he was going to do later that day. The first one was a physical picture. I'm gonna open your blind eyes. And now we're at the spiritual reality. I'm gonna open the blind eyes of your heart and your soul so you can see me as king. 
so you can see me as God. And, and that's the miracle that brings about the real glory for God. This guy falls down and he exalts God. He worships him. He, he sees for the first time right here, not earlier when he got his sight, but right here, he sees who Jesus is and he worships him. He responds in worship. This part of the passage should be where, where Christians rejoice. This part of the story, if you're saved, it should sound familiar to you because it's your story, right? Like you're the blind beggar. Do you guys get that? We're all the blind beggar. I'm the blind beggar. There was a time when I didn't see, when I stumbled around in a world of complete darkness and sin, where I lived and I thought I was okay. I thought I knew it was what, what was right. I thought God was happy with me, but instead I was living in darkness and I, w- I was a beggar. I thought I was fine. I thought I was okay, but there was nothing I could do to help myself. I was desperately in need. That's the Christian story. But then a man named Jesus, he shows up and he speaks light into our dark world. Man, he extinguishes all the the darkness and the shadows out of our soul and he shows us who he is so that we can, so that we like the blind man, we can be worshipers of God. And so that our identity really changes from, from blind beggars to sons of God. That's what God does. It's, it's the glorious miracle that, that, that God does all the time, again and again and again. This wasn't the first time he had, he had opened the eyes of a man's soul and it wouldn't be the last. And, and I'm telling you today, he would be glad to do it again. If that's your story, if you're in darkness, if you're stuck, if you can't see Christ how you ought to, he would be glad to open your eyes to show you the glory of who he is. So, so don't hesitate to come to him. Our passage ends with Jesus starting a, a discussion with the Pharisees. So this, this discussion actually continues far into chapter 10. Okay, the story's not over into chapter 10, but we don't have time to cover all of chapter 10 too. And um, I'll just summarize the end of chapter nine and the beginning of chapter 10 with you. So chapter nine ends with Jesus telling the Pharisees that they've got things backwards and they're, the actually, they're actually the ones who are blind. That's what he's saying to me, saying, you guys have got things twisted. You're the ones who don't see right, okay? That's what he tells them. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, he tells them, you're also deaf, okay? So here's your condition. You don't see and you don't hear. And, and why does Jesus say that? Just think about, as I was looking, looking at all his conflict with the Pharisees all the time that he's talked with them. Think about all that these guys have seen with their own eyes firsthand, okay? And all the things that they got to hear about, all the miracles of Christ. With their own eyes, they saw, they saw him heal the blind. They saw him heal deformed people and crippled people and crippled people and raised people from the dead. They, the, the things that they weren't there for, they talked to the people firsthand, Okay, that's what happens in this time. They don't see the man healed, but they bring him in firsthand. They get his testimony. The evidence is all laid out in front of him. And Jesus calls them blind and deaf because after seeing all this, they miss it, right? It's right here in front of them, okay? Jesus, the son of God, the one they've been waiting for throughout all of Old Testament history, okay, the Messiah shows up in front of them and they miss him. That's why Jesus looks at him and says, you guys are blind and you are deaf, okay? Because they have missed him right in front of him. And th- this makes me think, um, you know, these guys, they don't want to see the truth. And if you guys, if you read through these passages, it's clear they will look for any explanation that doesn't result in Jesus being God. They, they, that's what they're always doing. They, they don't want to see it. They have closed their eyes on purpose. They have stopped their ears up on purpose. Do your kids ever do that when you try to speak truth to them? 
that makes me so mad, okay? When they do this still and they're like, and they close their, you know, they, they, they do. My, my son's done that before and I, I can, oh, it's all I can do to not like pop his hands off his ears, you know, or try to pry open his eyes because I'm, I'm trying to speak loving truth to him, right? I'm trying to tell him something. His dad cares about him and knows he's, he's twisting off and headed toward a destructive path and, and I'm trying to help him out. I'm like, okay, you, you can't hear me like that and sometimes they'll even make noise. That's the Pharisees. That's their heart. Jesus is there. God's in front of him. He's speaking loving truth and they're going, ah, la, 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 la. They, they don't want to hear. They don't want to see and they are, they are shutting themselves off from the God of the universe, and we do it too. That's scary. Some of us do that same thing. We, we have here, okay, we have evidence, we have truth, we have scripture that tells us that Jesus is the Christ, okay, the Savior, the one we need to, to shine into our darkened hearts and give us sight. And, and sometimes we're like the Pharisees, like when will, it, when will we have enough information to trust him? Like what, what, would it have helped if they saw a hundred more miracles? no. It's clear that, that it wouldn't have. They, they aren't interested in it because they are, they're intentionally choosing not to see him. Man, we ought to pray for eyes to see him for who he is and ears to hear him for who he is. And, and we have to fight that, that instinct to, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. You know, sometimes the most loving thing for me to do to my son when he's doing that to me is to pop his ears off, not his literal ears. Pull his hands away from his ears rather. So to do that or, or, to, or to yell truth at him. Sometimes that's the loving thing to do. I think that's why Jesus is so harsh with the Pharisees. I think, I think when he calls them, you know, you brood of vipers or when he's, he's speaking to them and says, hey, you guys are sons of the devil. Like this is all in this, this, these few chapters. He tells them that. When he says, you're deaf, you're blind, you can't hear me. I think that he's, he's saying harsh things to try to jolt them into truth, out of love, he, he, is, he is like basically screaming at him, you're gonna miss me, you're, you're not gonna see me, I'm here, I'm the savior, I'm the rescuer, you're gonna blow it, and, and he loves his kids so much, even these, even these people with such a heart like the Pharisees, that he is just, he's hammering them with truth because he doesn't want them to miss it. And I think that's why the whole gospel of John has more about Pharisees in it than it does about people who are saved because John doesn't want us to miss it. He doesn't want the reader to miss it. So look, look lastly at John 20, verses 30 and 31. John tells us the purpose he wrote the whole book of John. And he says this, this is the purpose of the book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, here's why they're written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life. So he tells us, he tells us, this is the whole point of, of everything I write. I want you to believe. I want you to see Jesus for who he is. Don't miss him. He's the Christ. He's the rescuer of the world. That's his heart. So I'm gonna pray for us. Man, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss out on him. Don't, don't shut your ears to him. Don't close your eyes. Don't wait for more information. Man, like it's here. He's given us all we need to know. Come to him now and, and let him open your eyes and, and change your life forever. Let's pray. Father God, we, we love you. You're so amazing. You're so patient with us and gracious. And I, I just pray that you would Man, speak truth into our hearts. Let us hear, God. 
Unstop our ears, open our eyes to the glories of Christ, God. Show us who you are and let us be amazed and and be like the blind man who responds in worship. For those of us who have seen God, and that is our story, right now is a perfect time to exalt you in glad worship, to lift up your name because you changed our life. Let us do that. For others, God, we haven't responded. Give us what we need to do that. In your name we pray, amen.